From Audio Boom comes Covert, a new podcast that delves into the murky world of spies, soldiers, and top secret military operations. I'm Jamie Rennell, and together we'll discover the real stories of history's greatest classified missions, told by the operatives, soldiers, and journalists who experienced it firsthand. Follow Covert on Spotify or subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. Fifteen seconds. Guidance is internal. Ten, nine, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. Five, four, three, two. One, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello again, and thank you for joining us on Space Nuts, the astronomy podcast with uh, your host, Andrew Dunkley. That's that's me. And Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. That's him. Hello, Fred. That's me. Hello, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm very well. Good to see you again. Indeed, it's good to see you too. Today, we're talking about black holes, and it seems that uh, there's a little bit of a mystery. I mean, there's a lot of mystery surrounding black holes, but uh, <laughs> one of the mysteries is why they only seem to come in two sets of sizes either, you know, sun-sized or super magnificently large beyond belief size and nothing in between. Why, it is, uh, why is it so? Uh, well, it appears they may have figured that out or at least they've got a theory. Uh, and we're off to a part of the galaxy not far away, I imagine, because we're sending a spaceship there and, you know, we can't go too far these days unless we've got plenty of time. Uh, we'll find out what that is. And Sophia, we're going to talk about Sophia and that's all I'm telling you for the moment. So, Fred, first up, let's uh, look at black holes. They only come in small and extra large, and we, and we haven't known why. Have they figured it out yet? Apparently they have, yeah. This is, um, a, I think, quite an important piece of research that's come from uh, a collaboration uh, between scientists in Israel and in the United States. I wondered if you... Do you know what a black hole is, Andrew? It's, uh... it's, it's a um, singularity. Oh, that's very good. That's very, very good. Yeah, but okay, I, don't, well, I don't know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> well, you and I, you and I are singularly good at explaining these things. Mm -hmm. So, um, the the actually the definition of a black hole uh, is it's a point at which the density of space is infinite. Right. So, and look, that immediately blows your head in, you know. <laughs> yes. We know water has a density of one gram per cc, uh, but something with infinite density, we really can't get our heads around it. But that is the definition of a black hole, and mm. we know that they exist. Um, uh, first, uh, the phrase was coined, I think, in 1967 by John Wheeler. I think I'm right in saying that. Uh, anyway, a point where the density of space is infinite, what that does... Um, because we know from Einstein's general theory of relativity that uh, any sort of matter in space curves the space around it. That's actually the effect we feel as gravity. When we when we sit here on the Earth, uh, usually held onto our seats when we're sitting down by gravity, that's not, uh, as Newton thought it was, it's not a force pulling us down. It's the fact that the space around the Earth is slightly distorted. So the, the force that you feel at your feet is slightly, uh, sorry, the shape of space at your feet is slightly different from the shape of space at your head, uh, and you feel that as a force pulling you down. So, so um, black holes, of course, having this infinite density uh, in a very, very small space, they distort the space around them enormously. They curve the space 
violently around them. And what that does is prevent, first of all, present, pre prevents any light escaping from a black hole, which is why they're called black holes. Mm -hmm. They have so much gravity that even light can't escape. But it also means that when you look at a black hole, and hopefully very soon we'll be doing that with big radio telescopes, you'll see the distortion of the space around it in a very kind of weird and wonderful way. It looks like a lens in space because of the way it distorts it. Now, that's, so that's Black Holes 101. Okay. Um, how, yeah, I'm still <laughs> confused, but that's all right. It's just me. <clears throat> no, no, I'm confused as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so why, how can we see black holes in space? Well, um, it's by their effect on their environment. That's basically what allows them to see, what allows uh, astronomers to see them, because they, they do tend to collect stuff. Um, black holes usually have a disk of material around them. It's called the accretion disk. Accretion accretion is just a process of collection, basically, a fancy word for collecting stuff. Uh, the accretion disk is where gas and dust and probably occasionally stars get, um, you know, they, they, they get into this maelstrom of circulation around the black hole before they're gobbled up by it. They, they basically whiz around at significant fractions of the speed of light and are gobbled up by the black hole. Um, uh, the it's the the, the, the sort of uh, jostling of material within this accretion disk that actually allows the, us to see the black hole because they uh, that jostling emits x-rays and radio waves and a few other things so even though the black hole is black the accretion disk is glowing and yeah and you make it sound so elegant Fred but it's actually cataclysmically violent it, it, well, it is seen from the outside it's not bad but yes if you're in if you're in that accretion disk well you'd be getting spaghettified you know that's yeah. what happens when you fall into a black hole you turn into a string of spaghetti which um I, well you know some I, I think might explain why i'm uh, long and thin compared with most people in the in the human race i got too near a black hole in my infancy could have been gravity story. yeah it, it could have been gravity it's more likely genetics i think <laughs> uh, so to cut to the chase here um we know about black holes, we can observe them, we can see their effect on the environment, and that allows us to weigh them, uh, to, to measure their mass. For example, the black hole that is at the centre of our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, has a centre in the constellation of Sagittarius. Um, we know there is a black hole there because we can see its effect on stars that surround it. Uh, and in fact, those stars circulating around it, actually quite close to the black hole, but in no danger from being dragged in by it because they're far enough away. Um, those stars, uh, uh, then the movement of those stars allows you to weigh the black hole. And you get an answer for that of three, I think it's 3.6 million times the mass of the sun. So this thing weighs as much as 3.6 million suns. Good grief. Uh, and that, that uh, essentially uh, qualifies it to be called a supermassive black hole. Now, we believe there is a supermassive black hole at the centre of every galaxy. In mm -hmm. fact, some galaxies have supermassive black holes whose mass is measured in billions, not millions of tonnes. Uh, sorry, millions, not billions of solar masses, not tonnes. There's far too many tonnes to, to talk about. Um, it's solar masses that we measure these things in the mass of the sun. Um, so some black holes at the centres of galaxies are billions of times more massive than the sun. Are you still with me, Andrew? I, I am, Fred, yes. I, I actually understand, you know, mega-sized things in terms of, of what's happening in space. I it, it's hard to imagine, but I do understand they exist. We, um, we are born megalomaniacs in the world of astronomy. Uh, <laughs> right. Now, the other, the other extreme is that we also see 
black holes that have about the same mass as the sun, maybe two or three or 10 or perhaps even 50 times the mass of the sun. We believe they are formed when uh, really massive stars explode at the end of their lives. And that, uh, so that's a process that's relatively well understood. We know how these things came into being. But the questions, the two big questions are, one, why do we never see anything with a mass of, say, 10,000 times the mass of the so sun? There's not, so nothing not, in between. A not-so-super-middle-sized black hole. Exactly. That's right. That's the professional term that's used for this. <laughs> not-so-super-middle-sized black hole. We don't see them. No. There, there aren't any. We see the, the, the solar mass sized ones and we see the billions of, or millions of solar mass sized ones, but nothing in between. Um, and the other question is, how did those big ones get so big? Mm. And the answer has now come from these scientists I mentioned at the beginning, based in Israel and the United States. And what they've shown is that um, probably the, the, the black holes at the centers of galaxies may well have formed in the very early phase of the universe, perhaps 10 to 12 billion years ago. Uh, the universe is about 13.8 billion years old. We know galaxies were forming prolifically uh, early in that period. So maybe maybe 10 to 12 billion years ago. Uh, and the, what these researchers have demonstrated is that uh, black holes do gobble up stars. Um, with a fair degree of rapidity. And in fact, they've put a number on it. They reckon that a black hole will collect perhaps uh, about 10,000 sol... Uh, let me get that. Let me, let me put this in a different way. Mm -hmm. they, they show that, the, that a black hole will collect one solar mass of material in the form of stars, in other words, one times the mass of the sun, about every 10,000 years. So that uh, is a, they suggest that it's a constant rate. So these black holes are growing one solar mass every 10,000 years. That so sounds you, very if, slow. So if you do the maths and add it up over 13.5 billion years, you get supermassive black holes. You got the bottom line there in words far more concise than I could ever put together, <laughs> which is why you're a radio star and I'm just an astronomer. <laughs> I wouldn't say just an astronomer versus a radio presenter. It's yeah, they're, they're universes apart. <laughs> uh, indeed, and uh, that's a pun and a half there. But the, so so that's the point that, that if you if you grow a slow um, a black hole slowly over long enough, you get the supermassive ones at the end. And and if all black holes do that, well, it means you, you never see these intermediate mass ones. So you might have seen them if we'd been around. Yeah, if oh. we'd been around seven to ten billion years ago, that's we right. would have seen middle sized ones. Seen them. Yeah, 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 gotcha. That's right. It all makes sense, Fred. And you know what's so great? We we have an answer to something in the astronomical well, world. Very right. rare. Yes. It, it, that's right. And so um, it'll be really interesting to see how the you know the astronomical world reacts to this because it could be the solution to a problem that's dogged us for well decades, really. Mm, interesting times. Uh, black holes are just so fascinating because um, you know we we spend a lot of time studying and talking about what is essentially nothing, Infin <laughs> infinitely. <laughs> Yes, infinite. Mm. All right. Uh, you're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and, of course, Fred Watson. Space Nuts. Next up, Fred, uh, we're going to um, talk about a, a, a mission that's due to start in uh, oh, a couple of years' time. Uh, the New Horizons probe, I believe, is headed for, wait for it, dun-dun-dun, MU69. 
<laughs> Look, you, you've got to hand it to astronomers. They really know how to give glamorous names to their target objects. MU69, uh, the uh, little asteroid that is the next target of, of interest for the New Horizons space probe. Uh, re just recapping, of course, that New Horizons um, made its epic flyby of Pluto uh, back in 2015. It's hard to believe it's two years I ago know. already, uh, ju uh, July uh, the 14th, 2015, um, and absolutely revolutionised our idea of what Pluto was like. We, everybody in the astronomical world, and I think most of the, the normal world as well, uh, they, they were all amazed at the information that came back from New Horizons, revealing Pluto to be a world with essentially geological activity mm. going on. On, even mm. though that activity is in, in not in rocks but in frozen water and slushy liquid nitrogen. Anyway, so uh, that flyby took place at a speed of about 14 kilometers per second because New Horizons being a really fast spacecraft and the reason why it had to be fast was to cover the five billion or so kilometers to get to Pluto before everybody lost interest in the project. It did that in about 10 years. Um, so it was one of the fastest um, solar system probes ever launched. Maximum speed, 23 kilometers per second. It had to slow down by the time it passed Pluto because that's what happens with gravity. But it's, um, because it was so fast, there was never any chance of slowing it down to put it in orbit around Pluto. That was simply ruled out by the, the, the physics of what would be needed to do that. Yeah. So um, the decision was taken after the flyby, not just to wave New Horizons goodbye, because it will eventually leave the solar system, but to try and target another of the uh, belt of icy asteroids, of which Pluto is a large member, mm. that we sometimes call the the Kuiper Belt, named after Gerard P. Kuiper, who was a Dutch-American astronomer uh, who actually proposed that these things existed back in the 1950s. Um, the Kuiper Belt, sometimes they're called trans-Neptunian objects because they're all beyond the orbit of, of Neptune. So, um, uh, Pretty well immediately, uh, actually a little before um, New Horizons got to Pluto, people started looking for a suitable target for it to be steered towards beyond Pluto uh, to kind of keep the mission going so we could find out more about uh, these Kuiper Belt objects. And the one that was discovered, was actually found by the Hubble telescope, was given the name MU69 for reasons best known to itself. Uh, and uh, Pluto, sorry, New Horizons is now on its way to that. It will rendezvous with MU69 on the 1st of January 2019. Put that in your diary. It's yes. one of these things, you know, because uh, orbital mechanics is so precise, you could probably almost give the date of the, uh, sorry, the time of the of the flyby. We know the date. It will be possibly before, it might, may even be the 31st of December of the previous day, but it's round about um, the end of 2018, beginning of 2019. So uh, what's happening at the moment is New Horizons is basically switched off to conserve all its power. It's in a kind of hibernation mode, which is actually what it was in when it was on its way to Pluto. But in the meantime, astronomers have been looking at MU69 to try and find out more about it, because we know virtually nothing about this tiny object way, way out there, probably somewhere in the region of uh, well, it's uh, of the order of six billion kilometers from Earth. It's, you know, so far out in the solar system, it's almost inconceivable. But we can still see it with our telescopes. So what has happened is uh, observations have been made that show that MU69 uh, was about to occult a star. Um, so what is an occultation? Uh, occult just means hidden or 
the, the occult we talk about, but astronomers use that term as well. An occultation is when an object like an asteroid passes in front of a distant star and it dims the light of the star and that lets you measure how big the asteroid is because right. you know how fast it's going. Yep. So for the length of the dimming tells you how big it is. So this has been tried now twice actually with, uh, with MU69. So the first one was uh, on the 3rd of June, it passed a star and I think uh, over 50 observers had telescopes all over actually South Africa, Argentina, the, the, the southern hemisphere region where the shadow of this asteroid cast by the star was going to pass across. They got, um, they got results from that, a two-second occultation, which tells you immediately that this is a very small object, mm. um, and, and captured lots of images. But they, they couldn't really get any direct observations of MU69 itself. It was thought to be somewhere between 20 and 40 kilometers in diameter, but it, it may actually be, you know, a, a group of smaller asteroids rather than a single object. And that's something we really don't know about yet. But uh, further occultations have been planned. One has already taken place. I haven't seen any results from it, but uh, it was made by Sophia, which we're going to talk about in a minute. I'll tell you what Sophia is. Um, but the next one is planned uh, for a few days' time from when we're recording this. Uh, it's actually going to be on the 17th of July, and that will be observed by the Hubble Space Telescope. So hopefully we might find out a little bit more about MU69 in the very near future. Watch this space. And I'm I'm guessing it's been targeted because it was convenient or was it targeted because they thought there was something unusual? Um, initially, it was the first of those mm. options. So when uh, when the um, you know the mission scientists were looking for a suitable target beyond Pluto, I think they had something like three candidates uh, objects that were found, and for each one of them, you'd have to make a course correction. So you've got to steer New Horizons in in the right direction. Uh, MU69 was just chosen, I think, uh, pragmatically as the best bet for for getting good results from from New Horizons. Okay, well, we'll uh, certainly be able to talk more about that in uh, about a year and a half. I guess so. <laughs> mm. Well, it's better than the several billion years we've got to wait to talk about other things. <laughs> we'll listening. be there. Don't worry. We'll oh, be there. We will. We will. In spirit. Uh, this is Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. What a matchup! And what a team, Mike. Metro PCS and the iPhone SE for $0 on a network that covers 99% of people in the U.S. Oh, impressive. Play with the best. Switch to Metro PCS and get a 32-gig iPhone SE for $0. Metro PCS. Coverage not available in some areas, plus sales tax and $10 activation fee. Claim based on talking tax. Not valid for active numbers currently on our T-Mobile network or active on Metro PCS in the past 90 days. See store for details and terms and conditions. Okay, we checked all four systems, and here we go. Space Nuts. Now, Fred, uh, you did mention Sophia, which uh, has you know, become part of the story of MU69 that we were just discussing. Uh, we had a, a question. In fact, we had a photo sent to us by uh, Lisa, who lives not just, you know, just down the road from me, about an hour's drive. Uh, Lisa also used to work in radio, and um, you know, we stayed in touch over the years, and... Uh, uh, she's uh, she used to uh, present and, and talk to you on a regular basis, so it's nice to hear from uh, from Lisa, um, who is travelling at the moment, and she sent us a photo of uh, of something, um, which uh, is Sophia. So what is Sophia? 
<laughs> well, it's an acronym. And the acronym stands for Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy. And the first word is the key one, because this is a telescope. Uh, it's a big one. It's a, bigger than the Hubble telescope, 2.5 meter diameter mirror. Uh, but it rides on an aircraft. Mm. And in fact, it rides on a, uh, a, a Boeing 747 SP. Do you remember the SP version, the special performance yes. version of the 747? Yes, they used to fly between Sydney and uh, Honolulu as, as, as well as uh, over to the west coast of the United States. I remember flying on them back in the 70s and 80s. Um, so a shortened version of a, of a 747 to give it additional range, that's in the days before aircraft engines became as, as um, efficient as they are now. Mm. So SOFIA is it's actually a project uh, jointly operated by NASA and the German Aerospace Center, the uh, DLR, um, and it's uh, basically an airborne observatory that flies on missions uh, really all over the world. They station the aircraft at different places. It's recently been in New Zealand and make flights from there to take it up to a height of round about 12 kilometers uh, above the um, above the Earth's surface. Uh, where there is virtually no water vapor in the atmosphere. The atmosphere is completely dry. And what that means is that you can look at the full wavelength range. That means um, all the different, um, you know, wave bands in the infrared region of the spectrum. So the redder than red, that area of the electromagnetic spectrum that is beyond uh, red light, that is of great interest to astronomers because there are many sort of diagnostic signatures in there that tell you about objects in space. Um, one of the problems with observing infrared uh, radiation from the ground is that water vapor absorbs it in certain bands. If you get above all that, uh, as you do with Sophia, then you, uh, you have a wonderful infrared view of the night sky. And it has been very successful. It's uh, a project that um, excites, first of all, it excites inspiration, as it clearly did with Lisa, mm. because seeing this aircraft, um, and I should say, the 747 in question has got a huge square hole cut in the back of it, which is, of course, what the telescope looks out through. So it's got this um, really quite, al when you see it, it's quite alarming, because uh, see it in flight, and it's got this, great uh, rift on its left-hand side uh, with a telescope uh, looking out. It's actually quite an old aircraft. It's 40 years old, in fact. It was built in um, April 1977, uh, but it's still going strong and still doing excellent work for astronomy. Um, I had uh, great results, or great reports of a SOFIA mission that one of my colleagues at the Australian Astronomical Observatory took part in a few months ago. He was observing um, remnants of supernovae uh, in space uh, and finding infrared images from that. Uh, I also know the deputy director of SOFIA uh, because he, he and I used to work together in Edinburgh, a man by the name of Hans Zinnecke, the German in oh, origin. You, you know what? I was hoping you were going to say Hans Solo. I know, it's a bit of a shame, but Zinnecke's <laughs> pretty good. Uh, Hans is somebody who, um, I, every time I've ever seen him, he's always had a smile on his face, and maybe that's because he's deputy director of Sophia. A delightful man, and, and, I'm, and I'm delighted that he's uh, attained these great heights in the, uh, and that's a pun, of course, in, in the astronomical world. Yes. <laughs> I, have to, I have to explain my puns, Andrew. They're not like yours. They're not. <laughs> Keep working. Keep working on them. Yeah, <laughs> Don't give up your day job that's right 
<clears throat> anyway, it's great stuff. And so, Sophia, thank you, Lisa, for mentioning it. It's, yes, um, and, it's, and a, it's a remarkable project. I should add, she did it while she was on holiday in New Zealand. So she thought of us while she was supposedly enjoying herself in uh, a time of leisure. So that was lovely for go. her to uh, take yeah. that photo and, and email it to me so that we could uh, have a chat about Sophia on the podcast, which um, now we know all about. <laughs> Very good. Mm. Well, we'll do something else next time. Absolutely. It does give me a, a, a little prompt to, as you always do, to, uh, to ask our listeners to send in their questions because that's really... Very important, a very important part of what we do. We're trying to tell people what they want to know, not stuff what they don't want to know. Exactly. Although I'm going to set you a little bit of homework, Fred, because there's been a bit in the news lately about uh, a possible Mars-sized object in the Kuiper Belt. Uh, we've talked about Planet 9 before. They're even speculating on a possible Planet 10. Uh, the mathematics suggests these things exist. They have not yet been seen. So uh, maybe you can look into that one for us and we can talk about it in the next couple of weeks. That sounds like a great idea, Andrew. You're grimacing. I can see it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not. I Look, um, I did see a headline whiz by that said something about Planet 10 and I <laughs> didn't have time to look at it. So I will check all that out and maybe even... We should be getting Sophia to look for this thing. Yes, indeed. That would be good. Yeah. yeah um, and, and just a quick message to Lisa. Um, I noticed one of her friends when she posted the photo of Sophia said, is that the vomit comet? No, that's a completely different story. <laughs> it is. <laughs> which we might talk about some other time. We will indeed. Thank you, Fred, as always. Great pleasure, Andrew. Good to talk to you. Good to talk to you too. We'll catch up with you next time. Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. And you've been listening to Space Nuts, the astronomy, astronomy podcast heard on just about every podcast platform available online. And don't forget our sister podcast, Space Time with Stuart Gary. Until next time, thank you for joining us on Space Nuts. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Tights.com. Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows.